Two years ago, when I visited this church, the pastor just mentioned that this was the first church I ever shared in. I'm the associate director of an organization, as Pastor Vicky mentioned, uh, the Center for Jewish Christian Understanding and Cooperation that is devoted to building bridges between our communities, between Jews and Christians, really connecting around the things that we share. Instead of focusing on the things that are different, we have differences, that's fine. But what we share is so much greater. What unites us is so much greater than what divides us. And focusing on those things and building a relationship. Because ultimately, as Isaiah 55 says, we're all gonna worship the Lord together in the house of prayer for all nations in Jerusalem. That's what we're all driving at. In other words, as Christians who support Israel, who bless the people of Israel, don't ever think of yourselves as fans on the sidelines rooting for us. This is not a Jewish story. This is a story of all of us. It's your story too. In Zechariah, chapter 8 and Zephaniah chapter 3, when it talks about the people of Israel returning to their land, it then continues and talks about people of all the nations who have faith in God coming and joining us. I can't fulfill those verses. Those verses aren't about me. They're about you. We're in this together. Our enemies know that we're in this together. The same people who hate Christians today 90,000 Christians were murdered last year for being Christian. Everyone who murdered a Christian last year on this earth for being Christian would gladly have murdered a Jew at the same time. Our enemies are telling us something that we could turn around as a positive. What they see in me that makes them attack is what they see in you that makes them attack. It's time for us to realize that too, that we share a certain set of values, God's values, the values of scripture, the values of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what we're fighting for together, shoulder to shoulder, as Zephaniah says. So thank you. Thank you for your support, for your friendship, for your love. And for the last two years, since I started full-time, building bridges with Christians. I've spoken in countless churches. I travel every month. I'm on the road for 10 days a month. The rest of the time, I'm in Israel with my family or speaking to Christian groups that come to visit Israel. But when I'm on the road, I'm visiting churches, visiting Christian seminaries. And the very first church that I ever set foot in to speak, the very first church was this one right here. On a Sunday, two years ago in August. Who was here that day? Wow. Did you know I was nervous? Did did it show? (laughs) But tonight I'd like to, I'd like to share on the topic of prayer. I'd like to talk about prayer. It's intriguing that prayer is obviously a very big part of our lives as people of faith. We pray. We have faith in God. We pray. We turn to God. And a few years ago, I was thinking about something very strange about the Bible in terms of prayer. Because, you know, the Bible's got lots and lots of 
things that God wants from us, things he tells us not to do, things he commands us to do, right? Nowhere in the law, in the Bible, in the scripture, nowhere are we commanded by God to pray. Now, you might think, well, okay, well, that's, maybe that means that we, maybe we don't have to pray. But here's the thing. While the Bible never commands us to pray, everybody's praying in the Bible. Abraham prays, and Isaac prays, and Jacob prays. Every, every, Moses prays a bunch of times. Everyone's praying out through the, throughout the Bible, right? So everybody's praying. It's obviously an important part of faith. It's an important part of a relationship to the Lord. It, I mean, it, that's our relationship to the Lord. We pray. So everyone in the Bible's praying, and there's all these laws in the Bible of all these things we're supposed to do, and never once does it tell us to pray. Isn't that interesting? Ever think about that? And I thought about it a little more, and I said, you know, the answer is in the question. If everybody in the Bible is praying, and it never tells us to pray, maybe it's because it's obvious. It doesn't say in the Bible, have a relationship with the Lord. It doesn't say that. Because if you have a relationship with the Lord, you're going to pray. In other words, it's actually even more profound. If you have a relationship to the Lord, you pray. Now, folks, the flip side is that if you say, I have a relationship to the Lord, and you don't pray, that's like saying, I got a girlfriend, but I never talk to her and never see her. Prayer. So I'd like to take a look at a few passages about prayer. What time do you want me to finish? Just go ahead. Tell me the time. What time? 20 after 8? Okay. That's tomorrow morning, 20 after 8. <laughs> we might be done before 20 after 8. We'll see. So I'd like to share a few passages about prayer. As I thought more about prayer in the Bible, I said to myself, hey, I want to find who was the first person to ever pray. Now, isn't that a good question? Everyone's racking their brains. Who's the first person to ever pray? Who was the f- now, whoa, whoa, before you start flipping pages, <laughs> let's, let's, let's understand something about this question. In order to answer that question, we have to come up with a definition of prayer. Because not everything everyone says to God is prayer. Like when, when Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? I wouldn't call that prayer. Agreed? Okay, so, so not, not everything we say to God is prayer. So we can't just look in the Bible for wh- who's the first person to talk to God. So how are we going to define prayer? Well, what's prayer? Ooh. Well, prayer is, let's see, prayer is asking for things. Okay, it's that, but is it only that? No, because, look, you guys just worshipped. Were you, were you praying? Of course you were praying. That's, that's worshipping the Lord. 
I, I was looking at the words of the songs you were singing, and you weren't asking for anything. You're talking about how great the Lord is. So praising the Lord is also a form of prayer, right? That's worship. Okay, so praising the Lord, that's kind of prayer. Asking for things is prayer. That's a lot of our prayers. You know, we, we reach out. God wants us to call out to him in times of need. So that's prayer. How about when, we, when we've done wrong and, and we, we turn to God and, and, we, and we express our regret and we express our feelings of guilt and how we want to be better? Is that prayer? Would that count? Okay, so I was like, okay, who's the first person to ever pray? Now, I'm going to share the answer with you, I believe to be the answer, and it will probably surprise some of you. Who's got my scriptures? Ah. Everyone see the scripture on the screen there? I'm going to give you, by the time we're done with this little teaching, this first teaching about prayer, I believe you'll have a different view of the first murderer, Cain. I want to take a look at uh, what Cain says after the Lord tells him what his punishment is going to be. Let's just review. Cain killed his brother Abel. So far, so good? Okay. Cain kills his brother Abel, and he killed his brother Abel because he was a farmer. He worked the land, and Abel was a shepherd. They each brought an offering to the Lord. The Lord preferred Abel's offering to his. He got upset by that. He was annoyed. He took it out on his brother and murdered him. The Lord then turns to him and says, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord responds by punishing him and telling him that the land will no longer give him his crops. I mean, he's a farmer, and he's being told, no more farming. The land is going to just, it's not going to respond to you anymore. As a result of that, you're going to be a wanderer. Right? You'll be lonely and wandering. This is his response to the Lord. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Or in the Hebrew, that can be carried. It can't be carried. That's what he says. Indeed, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. That's what he says to the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Now, before we go on anywhere, hold that scripture up on the screen. We're going to go back to the previous one in a moment. I first just want to point something out, which is not our main subject, but it's important to point out. We have this idea in our heads, probably from when we're kids and we first learned this story, that the mark of Cain is this terrible thing. It's like the sign of 
being evil, right? You know, the mark of Cain, like the way, the way we think about it as an expression. But when you look at the scripture, what it actually says in scripture, the mark of Cain is a sign of God's love and mercy. Because look what happened here. Let's just review the bullet points. He says, the punishment's too much. I'm going to end up wandering around. This is, someone's going to kill me. And he's, he's, he's pleading with the Lord to go easier on him. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give you a protection. That's, the mark of Cain is the Lord's protection on Cain to prevent him from getting killed. So just, I just want to throw that out there. So let's, first of all, change our perception of what the mark of Cain is. It's the sign of God's love for the sinner. Okay? Did you say it's good? Yeah, you, you ain't seen nothing yet, man. <laughs> Listen carefully, folks. I have a question for you. Look at that verse. Therefore, whoever kills Cain. Now, what's this therefore? Therefore means because of A, therefore B, right? Cain complains about his punishment. The Lord says, therefore, I'll go a little easier on you. Let's understand here. That means that had Cain not complained, the Lord would not have given him this mark of protection. I have eight kids. They have misbehaved at times. If I give them a punishment and they complain about the punishment, does that make me want to go easier on them? No. Let's take it a step further. Let's say I gave a punishment that was too harsh and my kid says, Dad, that's too much. So I go, okay, you're right. Is that what happened here? Does the Lord make such a mistake? The Lord gave a punishment to Cain. Cain says, you know, come on, God, that's a little much. And God says, okay, yeah, you, you know, you're right. Is that really what happened here? Does that make any sense? What's this there for? Because you complained, therefore I'm going to go easier on you? Because of what? What's the, you understand? Therefore has to follow something logically. Because A, therefore B. So what's A? The complaint? Can we go back to the previous slide? There we go. Let's take a look at exactly what Cain says. Now, this is going to start with that word, indeed. There's another problem word here, besides the therefore. We're working backwards. We have the word, indeed. You see that word on the third line? Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Indeed, you have driven me out. Now, in the Hebrew, that word indeed is hen. Easy word, one syllable, hen. Hen means yes, or indeed. Problem is that that word usually means agreement. Someone, two people are having some sort of discussion or disagreement, and one of them makes a claim, and the other one says, hen, indeed, it doesn't really work here. Because he's not agreeing to anything. He's complaining about a punishment. If it had said, behold, that would make more sense. That's a very biblical word. We don't use that in conversation, but we see it in scripture all the time. Because behold is sort of like, hey, wait a second. Right, that's what behold is, right? Shouldn't he be saying that? Why is he saying indeed? 
It's kind of like saying, you're right, but he's complaining. Now we'll work backwards even further. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Here, I don't know if you have different translations in front of you, and we're not going to turn this into, you know, you can take out your phone and go to Bible Gateway, you know, where you have like 50 translations. You ever do that? You ever look at a verse like that? That's a lot of fun. I've started doing that since I started speaking uh, to Christians because I speak about, the, about Scripture in English. I'm, I'm, I'm fluent in Hebrew. My Hebrew is as good as my English, and I read the Scripture in the Hebrew. It never occurred to me to look at translations. And I was surprised when I looked in English translations and saw this word punishment. I'll tell you why. If you go to Bible Gateway and look, they don't all say punishment. The Hebrew word here is avon, which means transgression. What he actually says is my sin is greater than I can bear. And I don't know why they all translate it as my punishment, but it doesn't say that. Well, I, I could guess as to why. There are places in Scripture where it says that someone shall bear their transgression, shall bear the punishment, and it uses that word. It, means, it can mean guilt. My guilt is greater than I can bear. But it means what I've done wrong. Now, this is a huge translation issue here. You know, if a rabbi is going to come speak in your church, he should share something from the Hebrew, right? You know, like, otherwise, what do you need me for? But listen carefully. Imagine, one of my kids, one of my kids misbehaves. I give him a punishment. Two possible complaints that are actually opposites. One what I've done wrong is so bad. Number two, that punishment is too harsh. Those are opposites. You see, if, if one of my kids does something wrong and I give them a, a, a really harsh punishment, and they say, whoa, oh my gosh, what I did was really bad. What that means is that the punishment is doing what it's supposed to do. They didn't realize how bad what they did was. I give them a really harsh punishment, and as a result of giving them such a harsh punishment, they go, oh my gosh, now I feel terrible. I didn't realize how bad what I did was, but this punishment is so harsh that now I realize what I did is terrible. But if the kid is saying that punishment is too harsh, they're actually saying the exact opposite. Because what they're saying then is, hey, what I did wasn't so bad. This punishment is too harsh. So whether you translate that as punishment or sin are opposites. Let's reread this now as sin, and we'll read carefully and see that Cain, Cain is not who we thought he was. I'm going to read it with being sin, and we're going to read it carefully. And Cain said to the Lord, remember the Lord has just told him what his punishment is. And he killed his brother because as a farmer, he was so arrogant about his crops that he thought that his crops were better than his brother's offering. And he went ahead and, and committed murder. So he says, whoa, oh my gosh. My sin is greater than I can bear. Indeed, you're right. Indeed, he's agreeing. Indeed, you have 
driven me out this day from the face of the earth. I'm getting what I deserve. I sinned because of arrogance of the earth, and now I'm being driven away from the earth. I shall be hidden from your face. Wait, we didn't notice that the first time. One of the things that hurts him in this punishment is that he's going to be further away from the Lord. Does this sound like evil Cain? I'll be driven away from your face. I won't have anything to bring as offerings anymore. I'll be driven away from your face. I'll be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And you know what's going to happen? Anyone who finds me will kill me. That's what I did. He realizes how bad what he did was. He feels terrible. He feels terrible that he's further away from the Lord. He feels terrible. He realizes the, the gravity, the severity, the seriousness of what he did and feels terrible. Go to the next slide. And the Lord said, therefore, I'm going to go easier on you. Now I understand what therefore means. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a message for us. If we've done something wrong and we turn to the Lord and say, wow, I realize how bad what I did was. You know what the Lord responds with? He responds with mercy. He goes a little easier on us. That's what happened with Cain. Cain commits murder. He doesn't understand how serious what he did was. When God first confronts him, he responds by saying, what, am I my brother's keeper? So the Lord gives him a punishment, and he gets it. And he feels, he, he, he then realizes how bad it was. He says, Lord, I get it now. I understand how terrible I've been. And the Lord says, therefore, I'm going to go a little easier on you. When we show the Lord that it hurts us, that what we've done wrong hurts us, that we understand how severe it is, that arouses the Lord's mercy and he gives us greater protection. He lightens the punishment. But doesn't that make sense? If my kid, if I give a kid the punishment because I want to teach him, the Lord doesn't want to hurt us. He doesn't want to take revenge. He wants to teach us. We're his children. If I give my child a punishment and they show me that they get the lesson, I might be inclined to go a little easier on them now because they're learning. That's how we have to be towards the Lord. And that's why I maintain that this is the first prayer. It's a prayer of the penitent, of the person repenting, feeling bad for what he's done, and turning to the Lord and saying, I don't want to be hidden from your face. I don't want to be bad anymore. I understand what I've done. That is a very deep and heartfelt prayer, and it arouses the Lord's mercy. Let's go to our next prayer in the book of Genesis. Okay. You know what, actually, in the interest of time, we're going to skip this one. Don't worry. Go to the next one. It's okay, it's okay. Here we go. The most, the longest scene of prayer in the book of Genesis, by far, is the scene of Abraham praying for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a long scene. Let's recap the story. Sodom and Gomorrah are two very evil cities, cultures that are just despicable. And the Lord says this is irredeemable. 
I have to destroy them. But before I destroy them, I have to tell Abraham about this. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He's got a universal mission to bring good to the whole world. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and the household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I'll go down and see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Okay, fancy biblical language. God says, I'm going to go down there and take a look at exactly what's happened. I'm going to tell Abraham about it because Abraham is the one who's going to teach justice and morality to all the earth. I need to let him know. So he goes. The men turn away. You know, go to the next slide. This is Abraham's prayer. He's negotiating with the Lord. Are there, maybe there's 50 righteous people. Maybe there's, and then he goes down in number. Uh, you know, the Lord says, well, there aren't 50. So uh, let's keep going. So, well, if there aren't 50 of them, uh, what are we up to here? Keep going. 45. Keep going. Maybe there's 30. We know where this is headed, right? Keep going. Okay. Before we read this line, Abraham negotiates and negotiates. He pleads and pleads. Now remember, he doesn't just want to save the righteous people. He doesn't say, Lord, any righteous people, get them out of there. He pleads with the Lord to save the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah on the basis of the fact that there might be a few people there who were good. Maybe, maybe 50 people, maybe 30 people, maybe 20 people, maybe 10 people. Are there, is there, any, are there enough good people there to redeem the whole city? Now, the Lord knows that the answer is going to be no. He knows it from the outset. He's destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. He just wants to let Abraham know beforehand. He's kind of setting him up. Think about that. The Lord's really setting him up. He, he ends up saying no to the prayer. So think about this. The Lord says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, before I do that, I'm going to tell Abraham. He's going to plead with me. I'm going to say no. And then I'll destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> this, is what, this is exactly what happens. So, so let's ask ourselves. We're, this, this story was given to us as, as scripture for us to live by and learn from. What are we learning from this story? Well, there are two verses after, after Abraham does all the praying. The... the uh, like, you know, let's think about, like, if we're watching this as a movie. You know, like, Abraham, God's talking to Abraham. Abraham's praying to the Lord. He's pleading with him, pleading with him, pleading with him. Then the camera shifts. And this part I didn't put up here on the screen. The camera then shifts over. And it shifts over to the angels in the city of Sodom at Lot's house. A horrific scene takes place. The people are... Uh, are uh, they don't want there to be any hospitality. No one's allowed to have a guest in this town. They want to commit terrible offenses against these people who are visiting. And then the thing, it, we don't have to recap the, how horrible this whole scene is. <laughs> terrible, terrible scene. So the camera is now on Lot and his family and, and, the, and the horrible people of Sodom. 
And then the destruction. And Lot and his family start running away. And then there's these two verses. These two verses are the next morning. This is what it says in Scripture. After the, the camera then shifts back to Abraham. And it's the next morning. And it says that Abraham arose early in the morning. And he ran out to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And you know what the next verse after this is? It goes right back to Lot and his family running away. And continues with another strange story of Lot going into a cave with his two daughters. His wife turned into a pillar of salt. His two daughters go into a cave with him. He has relations with his daughters and has children with them. And it tells us their names, Ammon and Moab. Another kind of scene we don't want to look at. So we have, let's go back to our movie. We have the camera on Lot and his family, the destruction of the city. We cut away to see Abraham get up in the morning, run out to the place, and look and see the smoke rising. And then the camera goes back to Lot and his family. Everyone with me? Okay. What is the point of having this verse? Why does Scripture tell me that Abraham got up in the morning and went out there and looked? And then it goes right back to the story of Lot and his family. Nothing happens in this scene. Abraham doesn't say anything. He doesn't fall upon his face and cry. He doesn't cry out to God and say, why, God, did you not save the city after praying for them? He does, nothing happens in this scene. He gets up in the morning, runs out, sees. Right? You can picture this as a film. Right? We're, like, you know, we're focused on what's going on in the city and Lot and his family and the fire and brimstone. And, it's, and, and then there's this scene where we just see Abraham. And then we cut right back to Lot. <laughs> nothing happens in this scene. Abraham doesn't say a word. That's it. That's the whole passage. So I'll tell you what I think. Abraham never sees Lot again. If you look in the rest of Genesis, the rest of Abraham's life, there's no interaction between Lot and Abraham ever again. Which leads to the distinct possibility that Abraham has no idea that Lot was saved. He might not have a clue. How would he know? And even if he found out that Lot was saved, you think Lot, if he ever saw his uh, uncle Abraham again, he was proud to tell him that he had a couple incestuous kids with his daughters? I, I doubt he, he wanted to tell so we assume, that it, we assume that people in the Bible know everything we know. Abraham, may, again, he may never have seen Lot again. He may never have known about those children. Here's our lesson. Did God say yes or did God say no to Abraham's prayer? He said no, right? Abraham prayed. The Lord said no. Have you ever prayed and the Lord said no? 
Yeah, you've had that experience where you're praying and you're pleading and you're pleading and you're on your knees and, you're, and you wake up the next morning and you look out and you see the smoke rising. It all went up in smoke. The answer was no. But the answer is never no. It says in Psalms that the Lord listens to every heartfelt prayer. Everyone who calls out to the Lord in truth, the Lord fulfills their will. But wait, I've prayed before and, and I've gotten the answer no. Someone was ill. I prayed for them and they passed away. Look what happened here. The Lord said, we started this passage by pointing out that the Lord said, I have to tell Abraham about this. You know why? Because he is going to teach the whole world about justice and morality. That's his mission. So I'm going to tell him about Sodom and Gomorrah. And as I pointed out, he was setting him up. Abraham prays and prays and prays. Why is he praying? Because he cares about justice and morality. He even, uh, he even says to the Lord in that, in that prayer, will the, will the judge of all the earth not do justice? Right? Abraham wants the world to be just and good. And he prays and prays and prays and prays and prays. And the next morning he looks out and as far as he can tell, the answer was no. And unbeknownst to him, Lot got out, got drunk and had relations with his daughters. And one of those daughters had a child named Moab. And Moab is the great, 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 great grandfather of a woman by the name of Ruth, the Moabite, who is the great, great, great grandmother of King David, otherwise known as the Messiah. Now let me ask you again. Abraham wanted to save the whole world, and he prayed and prayed and prayed. Was the answer yes or was the answer no? Salvation of all of humanity came from that prayer. Moab, Ruth, David came from that prayer. The Lord heard Abraham's prayer. And he answered him with a big yes, but Abraham had no idea to the day he died. And that's our next message for, our, for us. If you pray, if you call out to the Lord in truth, as Psalms say, the answer is always yes. But don't be so arrogant to think that that means that you have to see the yes. You might go to your grave thinking the answer was no because you didn't see the yes. The Lord says yes. You have to see it? Really? You don't always see it. Abraham didn't see it. Abraham the next day walked away saying... My prayers went up in smoke. Do we see any weakening of Abraham's faith after that story? We have a few more chapters about Abraham. He's just as devoted. And we lose faith when the answer is no. We don't feel like praying anymore. We feel like God has abandoned us. Folks, the answer is yes. Somewhere in the world. You prayed for someone who was sick. Maybe the Lord has his calculations. And if the Lord decided to heal a different person that you've never met because of your prayer... And you'll never be aware that it was because of your prayer. Does that satisfy you? Or does he have to heal the person you know about? 
the way the Lord works, we don't, we don't have to understand. If Abraham can be Abraham when it looks like the answer is no, and we know that the answer was yes, then the same can be true of us. We have time for one more? Okay. Um, I want to go to the last one. Yes, that's the one. Good. All right, our next prayer in the book of Genesis I want to look at has to do with Hagar. Everyone know who Hagar is? Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. Now, her, her boy was misbehaving in some way. He was a bad influence on, on, uh, on Isaac. He was a problem. He was there first and thought because of that that uh, the covenant is his, but it's not. It's been a problem for a long time. Hagar, as a result of her boy's misbehavior, gets banished with her son out into the desert. Abraham's not happy about this. It even says that it was bad in his eyes. He didn't want to kick him out. Abraham loves everyone. He wants everyone in. The Lord says, look, there's things that have to be done. So Abraham gives her water, provisions, sends them out into the desert. And the water was exhausted from the flask. They go out into the desert. They run out of water. And the water was exhausted from the flask. And she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went out. And when I finish reading this slide, don't turn to the next slide yet, please. Hold it there. And the water was, was exhausted from the flask, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down apart from him, a bow shot off. Okay, wait, let's pause there for a second. We, how do we picture Hagar? Like if we had to act it out, if we had to paint a painting of it. This poor woman, her child is dying. She puts the child under the shrub, and then she goes over and sits down and weeps. Do you understand how far a bow shot is? The Bible doesn't usually tell us distances. You ever notice this? There's not a lot of stage direction in the Bible. There's no like, a person that walks into the room and had a seat and leaned on their elbow and says, like in books you get that. In the Bible it's very like, and he said. We don't get all the details. It could have just said, I'm going to rewrite the verse and you wouldn't have thought anything was missing. You ready? And the water was exhausted from the flask and she cast the child under the shrub and sat down and wept. Wouldn't that have been fine? Why is the Bible telling us how far away she was? Do you know how far a bow shot is? A bow shot is if you take a bow, an arrow, and you shoot that arrow as far as it goes, where it lands, that's a bow shot. You understand how far she is? She runs away from the kid. I'm serious. That's what the Bible's telling us. We don't picture it that way, but read the words. What kind of mother is this? I'm serious. Her child, is, her child is, is dying. She puts the child under a shrub and runs away. Why? For she said, let me not behold the death of the child. It's like, I don't want to see it. Is this the way the mother of a child 
who is dying should, be, should behave? Hold him in your arms. I don't want to see him die. She didn't run off to go look for water. She went off because she said, I don't want to see it. What about his feelings? And she sat apart and lifted up her voice and wept. Now you think that I'm here to talk to you about her prayer. But I'm not. Go to the next slide. And God heard the voice of the lad. Whoa. What voice did he not hear? Hers. And God heard the voice of the lad. She raised up her voice and wept because she didn't want to see her kid die, so she ran away from this dying child. And the scriptures tells us, and the Lord heard the voice, God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, and now this is, this is a good translation. If you look in your translations, it does, a lot of them it doesn't say what is with you, Hagar. It's much softer. It, it really is. It really is. I don't know what you have there. You want to look in your Bible and tell me what you have? This is Genesis 21, verse, verse uh, 17, 18. What ails you, Hagar? Isn't that very conciliatory? But uh, the, the word ail, the Hebrew says, ma-lach, what's wrong with you? Liter or literally, what's with you? And I'm not going to get into a whole etymology session, but everywhere that construction appears in the whole scripture, it's attacking someone. It's rebuking them. The angel says to her, what's wrong with you? Which is when you think about that bow shot and what I just said before. That is what we should be saying to her. And when you read this passage, you don't pay enough attention to the fact that it says, and the Lord heard the, and God heard the, the voice of the lad. You sort of picture it as he's answering Hagar's prayer because she's crying and then the angel speaks to her. But why does the angel speak to her? Because of his cries, not because of hers. What is with you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad. There where he is. Scripture does not use extra words. There, where he is, well, what is all that? Couldn't the verse just have said, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad. Of course it's there where he is. But think about it. She ran away a pretty far distance, a good football field. She ran away from this child. And the angel's rebuking her. What's wrong with you, Hagar? The Lord heard the voice of the lad there, over there, where he is. Where you ran away from him, where you abandoned him. You go back there. And that's the very next verses. The very next verses, the angel says to her, go back, pick the boy up, hold him in your arms. That's what it says, right? For I got, because I have plans for him. You go back there. The prayer that God hears here is the voice of the lad who wanted to live. The lesson here, we've had a few lessons about our own prayer, right? We had a lesson about Cain 
that we learn from Cain that if you really show regret and apology and feeling bad that you're further from the Lord when you sin, the Lord will go easier on you. And we learn from Abraham that you don't have to know, you don't have to see the yes for it to be a yes. It can look like no to you and me, but God has bigger plans. And here we learn something else. There is a kind of prayer that God refuses to listen to. And it's a prayer when someone is self-centered and gives up hope. And that's what Hagar is. I don't want to see him die. That's why she runs away from him and cries. This isn't a cry of hope. This isn't a cry of yearning, of thinking that God could help. This is a cry of despair, of giving up. And it's a cry that's selfish. He's dying. I don't want to see it, so I'm going to leave the room. Is that what that person needs? Is that what the boy needs right now? Or is that what you need? That's a prayer that the Lord does not listen to. We should never give up hope. That's unacceptable. If you have faith in the Lord, there's no, there's no, giving up hope is the opposite of faith in the Lord. Yes. You give up hope and you're focused on your needs and not someone else's at a time of crisis and that's what your prayer is about? That's not a prayer. At that point, the Lord looks at you and says, what's with you? You know, there is someone the Lord's listening to and he's over there. Why don't you go over there? These are just a few lessons that we could take with us. Come forward to the Lord with real, with real apology and regret and contrition. Because the Lord is our loving Father. And when he punishes us, when he goes hard on us, it's in order to teach us, in order that we draw closer to him. And when we do that, when we do that, he goes easier on us. And have the humility to understand that the Lord has bigger plans that we don't see. So that it even, it's not our responsibility and it's not our right to know exactly how God answered our prayers. It's our responsibility to pray. To pray for what's right and what's good. And to know that God has a plan Abraham, it's not just that he didn't live to, it, that it was out of his view. We're talking a plan that didn't come to be for thousands of years. Moab, Ruth, David, Messiah. The answer was a bigger yes than saving Sodom and Gomorrah. It was saving the whole world, but he didn't live to see it. And the same is true of us. Don't expect to live to see it. We're here to pray. And lastly, never ever, ever give up. Never give up. And never turn your back on someone who needs to be held in a time of crisis because you don't want to look and see it. Those are things, a cry, at, uh, that type of cry the Lord ain't, ain't, he ain't listening to. And he's looking at you and saying, go back there, hold the person in your arms, do what you got to do.
I want to close with something that has nothing to do with what I just said. Just a thank you to you to reiterate what I said earlier about support for Israel. This church has been very generous. Been involved from the beginning in a project called Blessing Bethlehem. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Wow. Since last September when I was here, and this is where we launched the project, when I spoke here with Pastor Khoury Sunday morning last year, that was the first place we introduced this project. We have not missed a week. We have delivered food to the needy families, the Christian families in Bethlehem every week since. We're still going. We've brought many other churches around the country into the project. There's many more needs. But I just want to thank you on behalf of, uh, and, I, and you've, I'm sure you've shown the video of, uh, the, of the members of the church thanking. And that's really direct. It's what we call kingdom work, right? So I want to thank you for that. And I also want to thank you, you know, in Psalm 117, there's a verse, Psalm 117 is the shortest in the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord, all nations. Exalt him, all peoples, for the kindness he has done to us. Who's us? People of Israel. I always wonder what my great-great-great-grandparents in Poland or wherever they were, thought when they read that verse. Okay, all of these other nations are going to scream the praises of the Lord and thank him for being so good to the Jews. I don't know if I have to tell you that that never happened <laughs> back in the day. Most of the time, the Jewish people were just running for their lives. And they would read that verse and they probably thought it was as, you know, it's like the wolf lying down with the lamb. It's like, you know, the splitting of the sea or frogs coming out of the sky. Like, you know, one of these biblical miracles. Like what, all these people around us, these other nations are going to praise God for the kindness he's done to us? And hallelujah, look at the time I live in. Where I can walk into a church in South Dakota and there's an Israeli flag. And you're playing the Israeli national anthem. And you're celebrating the kindness that the Lord has done to us. I can go to Kufai in Washington, D.C. and thousands of Christians. And those thousands of Christians represent millions. Because the thousands of Christians in the room at Kufai are pastors. When Pastor Mike and Pastor Vicky are there, that's Faith Family Church being represented. So it's a room of them. It's a room of Pastor Vicky and Pastor Michael. It's pastors, leadership, political leaders from all over the country. Praising the Lord for the kindness he's done to us. Folks, when you praise the Lord for the kindness that he's done for Israel, you are an explicit fulfillment of Psalm 117. You don't need to look across the ocean for fulfillment of prophecy. You're a fulfillment of prophecy too. So thank you very much for your continued friendship. God bless you.